Yeah, I think my point is basically just to try to dispense with the fear of like kind of being in the red and like seeing everything as being this like, you know, yeah. big transactional thing and like keeping your ledger, you yeah, know? Like what do you have to lose? Welcome back to I'm the Villain. On this episode, we are we also have a return guest, um, Simone, who was on the communication episode. Thank you so much for being on again, Simone. I think people probably if you if you want to know who Simone is, you can go back to that other episode. But otherwise, I'm just going to jump into it. Let me just talk about what I have been like, what's been on my mind recently. And then maybe you guys can kind of give your thoughts. So I have been so I work at Fannie Mae right now short-term contract until December. So um, yeah, I'm leaving soon. But we have a, to their credit, they have been doing these anti-racism trainings, right? That's like been, you know, uh, outside company will come in and hold these for us. And so for for people who, who don't know about Fannie Mae, uh, Fannie Mae is like a, a mortgage company that buys mortgages from banks. So they're like the bank is considered the primary market. Fannie Mae is considered the secondary market. So we basically do this for like the whole country. There's like two companies in this business. There's like Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. And we have 75% of market share. So it's a pre it's basically a monopoly, right? <laughs> and so like the, the, the point is that the decisions that we make are huge, right? Like we, it affects like the entire housing market. So like it's really good that they're having these conversations about race because as we know, like race and housing are incredibly fraught with like redlining and like, you know, blah, 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 all down the line. And so, like, we had these conversations, um, the the training that ha we had one this Thursday and the training that we had was um, white supremacy, like culture. And to her credit, the woman who gave the, the woman who gave the training was amazing. Right. She like I feel like a lot of us have seen those like infographics where it's like, you know, the pyramid of white supremacy where like one end is normalization and the other side is like genocide right and like they were really good about drawing a sh direct line between like capitalism and white supremacy and like you know all of the ways in which these things are really intertwined and like you know seeing silence and apathy as being actively harmful right and so like we had these discussions afterwards and like it, even though like Fannie Mae is like a huge corporate company, like my team, which is the design team, is actually pretty woke. It's like full of like some very progressive people who are very on board with the notion of talking about race and white supremacy and stuff like that. And like we had the conversation afterwards. We had like a little lunch, like debrief. And I was like kind of disappointed because people, even though it's like full of these very well-educated, like progressive people who like have progressive values, the conversation was still felt very like, oh, we need to make sure that there's more diversity and representation in our marketing materials and stuff like that. And it's like, first of all, we already do that. But also like that is so like superficial level. And like, you know, that's like the easiest possible thing to do. Right. Like if we're in charge of like the entire housing market. Like <laughs> we need to figure out we we need to figure out how can we actually limit white supremacy in 
housing because we control that policy. Like we control what banks end up doing. And like, it's really frustrating to me that I like work at a company where like, at least my team is full of these woke progressive people. And yet we're still like shimmying around the conversation of like, what can we actually be doing? Because like, we're really afraid, regardless of how woke we are, to kind of question that system. Um, because it is kind of like if you delve into the real depths of like white supremacy culture, I mean, the woman was talking about like power hoarding, individualism, right to comfort, like pretty foundational things that are like pretty much the fabric of every single company. Mm -hmm. Right. And like, if that's what you start questioning, it's like, you just have to throw the whole company out. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Cause like every, every organization is hierarchical. Right. But like, yeah, that all does have this, you know, pretty foundational basis. And I think that's like controversial to people to draw that direct line of just like even things like the right to comfort and like wanting to feel comfortable because that's like a pretty universal thing. Right. Like everyone wants to feel comfortable. But like, you know, saying, oh, that's something that's couched in white supremacy was really interesting. I think probably very uncomfortable for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. So like I wonder. Yeah specifically about the idea of the right to comfort being like a white supremacist notion i wonder if the like is the implied for that statement that like certain people that make up the majority of the of the workplace like have the right to be comfortable at the expense of other people yeah i think the logic is like if you're the one black person and you in your company which is a lot of I'm sure you've been in that situation. I'm sure a lot of black people have been in that situation, right? Like if you have different, you know, if you don't assimilate to the white cultural norms, right? If you speak differently, if you look differently, blah, blah, blah. And like your coworkers want you to, like that makes people uncomfortable, Yeah. right? So their desire to be comfortable will often like trump the, the desire of anyone with any kind of difference whatsoever to express themselves or like be or exist. Right. Yeah. I agree with that. That notion. Right. And I definitely have felt the pressure of like, you know, being a, a black dude in like a professional setting to, you know, act a certain way or to like not use certain language, um, or like to not like speak in with slang or whatever. I, definitely still do because i'm i'm like on kind of a crusade personally to be my truest self in the office and then see what happens like see if people just have to deal with it or if people start being their truest selves in the office with some success but i definitely have felt the pressure for sure yeah i think that i would even take it as far to say like i feel um i don't want to like the word i want to use is segregated but it's not like that serious um but like from my coworkers because like I'm black, I feel like all of my white coworkers coworkers are kind of like friends and like they have like their friend group, but then I feel like kind of outside of that. Um, and then I feel like I have to perform a certain way to like fit in with them, but you know, yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, even just like the notion of professionalism is all just like white supremacy culture, Yeah. right? And <laughs> you were talking about about you know you all are literally in the position of power to be able to make changes Mm -hmm. in this in you know the home lending system which right as you mentioned is like pretty foundational to life in america right like if you want to have 
if you want to build wealth, if you want to do anything, like kind of the first step is like to get property or to establish a home base or whatever. And to do that, you obviously need an entry into like the credit system through loans or whatever it might be. Um, so Fannie Mae is positioned really well to actually make some like aggressive change in the area. And I've noticed in a, like a couple instances where I've like been talking to people in positions of power that have said to me, oh man, like I wish I could do more. Or like, I wish that, I wish this could be different, you know? And I think, I wonder if it's, I mean, I'm sure it's a lot of things. The thing that comes to mind is that I think that we're all conditioned to be a little gun shy when it, when it comes to big change. Like, I think that we're all kind of conditioned to like not rock to not rock the boat. You know, we all need because it's a capitalist society, we all need our jobs. And we're afraid that if we rock the boat too much that we lose our jobs and our livelihood. And it's like, there's like kind of just enough at stake to make most people feel really apprehensive to try and rock the system that they're in. I feel like um, what's recently been going on on Twitter, a lot of celebrities have been making tweets about like the change that needs to happen. And then a lot of people are like, well, you guys are literally like multimillionaires. Can't you raise this money? Can't you like literally put this together? And I think it was like John Legend that tweeted like, we need to like flip the Senate in order to do stuff. It's like, no, you have money. People need money. Like um, they were ta- someone was talking about like um, celebrities could have like crowdfunded another like stimulus check basically. And, you know, it's just, why aren't they taking those steps, I guess? And the same thing with the company. Why aren't you guys taking these steps, you know, uh, to improve mm-hmm. society if that's what you really care about? Yeah. And that's a good point, Simone, because it does feel almost silly if you take a step back and like, look at the things that like, look at the powers that be that you just mentioned, right? There are, especially like wealth hoarding, power hoarding, like what Isabel was saying, there are, you know, probably 50 people in this country that if they all decided that they wanted a thing to happen, the thing would happen. Um, but instead, we're fucking down here, like trying to create movements of millions of people to maybe hopefully get a policy pushed through, you know, and like in a very grassroots way. And it does, it does feel, for me at least, like kind of disheartening to think about it in that way yeah i mean it's so interesting because like so i've been thinking so much recently about like what do you really need government for right (laughs) if the only way to get government to do anything is to like get mass you know tons and tons of people to vote for it a lot of whom literally just aren't going to vote for it but like the there's there's nothing in particular that you actually rely on the government to to do that like a private person couldn't do. In fact, most of the time for most of that work, the government outsources to a private corporation anyway, right? Mm. So like there is, I think, no real reason. I think maybe at some point in the past, the reason why the government had to do a lot of this stuff, like things that could be done by like mutual aid or charities or whatever is because they had the ability to coordinate better than other institutions, right? Because they have all your information, like they're kind of a centralized system, right? But like, now that we have the technology to have like, you know, databases and like all these things that are kind of independent of, you know, needing the government to do that. Like there's no good reason why like a, a normal person couldn't just go like find a bunch of homeless people, like get their data. Like, you know, I'm sure a lot of them have cell phones. Right. And like set up a mutual aid network to try to help those people. Mm-hmm. Right. I think that 
so yes, you're correct. I think there's no good reason why that can't happen. And I think that there's a lot of precedent for the government trying to outsource that to, you know, non-governmental entities, as you, as you noted, like tons of contractor, uh, contractors for the government. And also, generally, the impetus of the nonprofit sector was exactly that. It was like the government saying, we don't want to do this. And like, we don't think that we should have to. And we think that the private or like, you know, individuals can make better decisions or whatever. This is like the impetus. It didn't really go that way. <laughs> it isn't perfect. But um, I think that maybe the other side of that coin is that one, I think there's a pretty compelling moral argument that like a government ought to be doing these things for its people. Um, like a, a government ought to be, you know, ensuring that its citizens have, you know, these baseline needs met or whatever. And also, you know, the government in itself has the capacity to be a bad actor, but I think maybe at least in theory, the regulation that comes from the government, um, might help limit the ability of them to like the ability that they have to fuck up somebody's life. Whereas an individual, you know, or even a nonprofit has more agency to do things, which, you know, leads to more flexibility, flexibility in what they can and can't do. But I think also has the capacity to fuck people's lives up more if they do it the wrong way. A lot of times when a new administration comes, you know, the nature of the work that the people working and like inside of the apartments doesn't change. But sometimes like with the Trump administration, um, when I learned, like this is something that I learned when I was at HHS, is that, you know, Alex Azar, who was the secretary of HHS, did actually like do his best to really, really kind of derail a lot of the work that was happening inside of HHS, which uh, kind of sucked. <laughs> See, that's the thing is all these things that are supposedly nonpartisan, like just that doesn't really exist anymore, right? Like everything is just partisan now. You know, because it's almost like there's two sides of like, you know, either you're the side that wants the government to work or the side that doesn't want the government to work. And if you don't want the government to work, then like, you know, all of it should just not work. There are a lot of really good people that work in these departments. And and Simone, I'm sure you can speak to this, that like, yeah, do want the best for the country. And a lot of work, you know, I don't want to paint a picture of like the work that happens in the departments is completely dictated by the the current administration, because a lot of it isn't a lot of a lot of times the secretary is appointed and like they don't know exactly what's going on and they never really like they don't like ever learn about the kind of the smaller projects that are happening or the ins and outs of stuff um they just kind of like let things happen and things yeah. just kind of go but on sometimes you know like trump just enacted like the sweeping change of like diversity training is no longer allowed in the government right mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. what i didn't hear about that yeah trump, <laughs> <laughs> they, they said no more no more diversity training <laughs> Because they thought they said it was racist. It's racist, right? yeah. It's racist against whites. Yeah. 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 Okay. <laughs> um. The things I just, I don't, oh, man. I don't understand, like, how he's been able to get away with so much. You know, that's, like, my big concern for, like, this government is that one person can come in and change so much about this government government that's supposed to have so many checks and balances in order for this not to happen what Mm -hmm. we have learned in this administration is that yeah there are a lot of buttons that presidents can push that we were just like hoping they wouldn't push (laughs) like (laughs) we were just hoping that like people that were president would be decent enough to not do these things Mm -hmm. um 
And to me, that's... He saw, like, one button that he shouldn't push, and he's like, where are the other ones? I'm sure that people (laughs) in his team were like, oh, yeah, I mean, in theory, you could do that, but people typically don't. And he's like, I don't give a fuck, do it. Like, yeah, do it. I don't care. Eliminate all diversity (laughs) training. (laughs) Like, I think it's unpatriotic. (laughs) And to me, that's kind of a a big... amorphous problem that i don't really know how to solve but to me it seems like the president shouldn't be able to do a lot of the stuff that he's been doing like he shouldn't be able to have the authority to authorize people you know authorize like troops in seattle to abduct people (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) like under suspect of you know whatever hurting a building (laughs) but like it's 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 one of those things that's like this this constant like how do you enable the people you want to do the things you want without enabling the people you don't want to do things you don't want, yeah. right? It's like the court packing thing, right? If Democrats pack the court, then Republicans, when they get in power, are going to come back and like be like, ah, well, we're going to have 29 Supreme Dude, Court justices, they, and they're all going to be like conservative, like Amy Coney Barrett's, you know? The, the Democrats better not pack the court. <laughs> it's going to be such a bad <laughs> idea. Because that's exactly what's going to happen. Yeah, like... Yeah. Every administration is going to add like eight more seats to the court and then it's going to be a hundred person, a hundred person court in 10 years. <laughs> right. Cause like every time you try to add, you know, you know, grab some level of power to enable yourselves, mm-hmm. you know, your shameless opponents will just yeah. <laughs> do that. And then they'll have the Supreme Supreme court. <laughs> right, 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 right. Exactly. For the inner circle of the Supreme Speaking court. Speaking of power, <laughs> this is a thing that, I mean, I don't know why I hadn't, you know, I mean, I, actually, I do know why. I'm a trained citizen of the United States. To, and, like, I was trained not to think this way. But I had never thought about how aggressively undemocratic the Supreme Court is until, like, a couple of months ago. <laughs> or, like... Well, I mean, the the entire justice system is aggressively undemocratic. Yeah. And, right? And, you know, I was talking to a friend of mine who I think is smarter than me. His name is Tyab. He was... He's my roommate. He's been on this podcast um, about like ways to make the court more democratic, mm-hmm. and he was actually pretty aggressively against like letting the people elect judges. How come? Um, I think that he didn't have faith that the American electorate body like has enough information slash knows what to look for in a in a judge. But we know what to look for in a president, or right? Yeah. Like, how do you d- gauge that? Right? Yeah, I don't. I don't know. I think I don't know if there is a way to gauge that. Um, I, he was more in favor of, um, you know, aggressively shortening the term limits and making it kind of like a circulating, a circulating um, set of judges. And mm-hmm. I definitely think it shouldn't be like a lifelong. For sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's just. Yeah, it's kind of a wild way to decide, right? Like, whoever is president at the time gets to just put a, put a justice on there. And we don't, you know, we didn't limit how many justices a president can put on to <laughs> a, the court. We didn't, like, we didn't do anything like that, right? We just said mm-hmm. anyone who's president can, you know, with Senate approval can appoint a justice or can put a justice on the court, and that justice is there until they don't want to be there anymore or until they die. <laughs> mm-hmm. Which is wild. Mm-hmm. Um, Talk about, like, you're right, that's, like, a really good example of power hoarding that is, like, explicitly to just perpetuate, like, white supremacy. Yeah, right? I mean, I don't know. I don't know what the purpose... I mean, you know, 
I, I think a lot of this stuff is dual purpose, right? Like, I think the underlying, when, you know, the framers and the forefathers were constructing our government, I'm sure a, a lot of the underlying, or maybe in times overlying, um, notions were white supremacists. Uh, right, well, I mean, like, if you have a system that's, like, trying to get, you know, like, it seems to me, like, the premise of a life sentence is just, like, okay, whoever's in power now, we're going to keep power as long as, like, literally humanly possible, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, a human lifespan, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, and, yeah, yeah, I mean, and, you know, the threshold is pretty low, like, we don't, we don't, there aren't really requirements of the person that we, you know, of the person that we end up appointing, like, Amy only has, like, three years of judge experience or whatever, and... But at the time, how could they have come up with those requirements in a way that would, like, you know, kind of last over time? Yeah. You know what I mean? They definitely well, could I have. think that, that means that the law should be um, changed over time. It will be changed, like, they have to yeah. As society, you know, adjusts. Like, a lot of people talk about how the Constitution was written by, like, the founding fathers. And it's like, why do we follow this thing that's been, it's so outdated, you yeah. know? So, it was supposed to be a reading um, document, you know? Like, it was supposed to be changing mm-hmm. with the with the country and i don't i don't know if the you know if the founding fathers could have ever predicted how hard it was going to get to be actually be able to make changes like maybe to them it was like oh yeah 60 you know 66 percent of states have to approve this amendment to the constitution that'll be easy you know like whenever they want to whenever they want an amendment they just have to agree and oh my god (laughs) You know, like there's this, I was listening to this episode of the Ezra Klein show recently with this woman who is like a a constitutional professor at Harvard named Danielle Allen. And her whole shtick is that the constitution, like we have so many conceptions of what the constitution was supposed to be. The constitution, according to her, was a memo. It was literally a memo Mm -hmm. being like, you know, oh, we got together and this is what we decided. Right. But because things took so long to like, you know, get to places and the on the colonies right because it was like you have to go on horseback and like you know like it takes like six days they wanted to make sure that whatever they wrote was extremely like strongly worded and really explicit but like the intention that they had according to her i mean i have no idea but she you know was that it was not like intended to be like almost any of the things that we say it was intended to be now right (laughs) it was literally a memo so what you're telling me is that we've been running this country on meeting notes for how, yeah, for how yeah. long? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I just worked on a memo for like a week. A lot of thought went into it. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, Isabel, did you have, you wanted to talk about, I think, caring more explicitly, right? Yeah. So like, yeah. So like the, my, that whole like, you know, thing that you know where where I went to this like anti-racism training was kind of just like you know the 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 background to like I feel like there's so many people around me like you know in in Fannie Mae is like one just one example right of people who have very similar values right we're at a point in our nation where we're like talking about race and like kind of getting people up to speed and educating people and I feel like a lot of people are really on board but then it's kind of like okay but what now because like actually changing things is actually going to require a pretty significant amount of personal sacrifice (laughs) right and that's uncomfortable right Mm -hmm. and people don't want to do that right so like now that like you know there's so many more quote-unquote like woke people and people are talking about this in the media and in like the mainstream discourse 
right? Like I feel like the the heart like people are on are kind of more on the same page now, but then it's, the question is how can you get people to like then sacrifice their time, money and you know whatever else, you know, uh, energy, right, to try to change the system because everybody I think thinks that oh, you know, I don't have very much power to change this. Like, you know, even though like Fannie Mae I think is a great example, even though Fannie Mae is literally like the monopoly company that kind of controls the housing industry, like all these people seemingly like feel like, oh, but what can we do? We're just designers. We're just like, you know, like we can maybe <laughs> we just, change the pictures in our marketing, the right? <laughs> it's like, no, you need to make sure that like when you're designing these products that every lender in the country is going to use, it's not fucking racist, <laughs> right? And that's like really uncomfortable. It's really uncomfortable in a meeting to say that, yeah, right? And it's like, how how do we like, you know, then move forward and like get people to see it as a function of something they can actually. I think everyone in the government, everyone in a large company or any large system feels that way. I feel like they're like, oh, but like, I'm just a small cog in a big machine. Right. Mm. And like you said, like, go ahead. Well, I was was just going to ask, like, what do you guys feel like we should personally be doing? It's like, is our job to just hold bigger entities responsible or like we were talking about earlier, is it to like organize like, you know, like mutual funds and things like that? I'm sure it's like an all of the above kind of thing, you know, mm-hmm. but like, I do think that that just from the organizational standpoint of people who do already have power, as opposed to trying to build that grassroots power from the ground up, like, like people are really gonna have to step the fuck up and like you know do things that actually like risk their careers and risk their personal comfort at the expense of like you know as you said deandre everyone needs a job under capitalism everyone feels vulnerable everyone feels like unsafe even if they are white men or like you know people who are in the most privileged possible positions right right? is that a fair ask like is it is it fair to ask you know any one person to give up everything for you know the good of the future also what do you think holds people back i think i guess that's kind of obvious like just like wanting your job is like what holds people back from you know being more like standing in their own opinions is that i think it's that and conflict aversion (laughs) i think it's like not wanting to rock the bow it's like social norms i don't know that seems like it would cause a lot of cognitive dissonance for me i think that i don't know being black is easy to be on one side but like you know non-black people have to play like you know a different role in like black lives matter and like being advocates mm-hmm. well what do you think that role is like how do people be advocates in a meaningful way i think it's talking to other people of your race about like what it means like what black lives matter means and it's like i think it's like kind of like getting in front of racism i guess mm-hmm. if that makes sense um like I don't think like your black friend should have to deal with like people like saying like racist things to them or like being around people that you know that are racist. So I think it's like getting in front of like that um, sort of mindset, like because things are said when we're not around that you guys can hear and like correct, you know, so I think that that's a start at least. Yeah, that's something that's also I think kind of this like uh uh, there doesn't seem like there's an obvious consensus to me over whose job, quote unquote, it is to like educate people on race issues. Because like, I feel like on the one hand, I know at least like, you know, for example, within the LGBT community, LGBT community, um, 
there's like the saying of like nothing about us without us, where it's like we don't want you making policy changes. We don't want you making like, you know, like like changes basically that are trying to help us without our involvement. Right. But at the same time, there's like also this narrative of like, oh, it's not black women's job to educate you. It's not black people's job or whoever X, Y, Z minorities job to try to like, you know, help you understand these things. You got to go take some initiative on your own. Right. Which I feel like are somewhat contradictory. Well, I feel like, OK, so a lot of people have been talking about, you know, abortion and women's rights. And should these laws be made without women? And it's like, OK, so or like should men even be making these laws? Should they be involved in these laws? And then it's like, OK, so should anybody be involved in any law that doesn't have to deal with them? So, I mean, I feel like, yeah, like you should be involved in the laws that, um, you know, are related to you. But I don't know. I feel like. It's. If somebody feels like educating you, then they can do that, but it's not their job necessarily. Like the information is out there. So I think that um, with the, like with the LGBT community, um, LGBT, yeah, community, um, <laughs> that I think that they're the two sides of the same coin, honestly. It's like, it, they're not saying that they want to like be like your sole provider of education about like their, you know, experience and everything. They're just saying, I want to be involved in the laws that are made, you know, like it doesn't necessarily contradict for me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I feel like a lot of the times like there's in the, in the like diversity conversations, it's like somebody in an organization will raise something like that's inappropriate or whatever. And then I think often a very commonly like disappointing institutional response to be like, oh, okay, we're going to make a diversity committee and all of the, you know, token diverse people are going to be on it. And then you can tell us what you want to do. Yeah. Right. And, but, but then, then I think there's committee will be toothless and like, well, a, it'll be toothless, but also B you're asking the people who are like being oppressed in whatever way to then do more work to like, you're just putting more burden on them to try to fix their own oppression as opposed to taking on the work, right? Like, from people who have less of that, like, oppression and, like, just, like, having to expend all this energy dealing with those problems in the first place, like, kind of going on. Right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, I think, I, I mean, I agree with you. I think that they can both exist. Um, but it is kind of, like, a, a weird kind of awkward line to walk when it's like, oh, okay, I am a person of color or, you know, LGBT person or whatever. And I, and here's this problem that, you know, I, I had in this organization. Right. And it's like, if you're an organization or an institution, like, okay, how do we solve that problem? And it almost feels like there's no way to really solve it without just asking that person. Okay. So what do you want us to do? It's such a complicated issue. Like, <laughs> to come at and I think that in all actuality you know you have to come at you have to come at it from every way right like kind of what Simone was getting at there are different questions at play why is this racist why are we racist how are we racist what can we do to make ourselves less racist in the future and dismantle what has made us you know racist or prejudiced and replace replace the ist and the ism with whatever ism we were talking about right like um, and, you know, figuring out the factors that led to where we are is just as important as this, as figuring out how to change things right now to me, you know? Um, but I think that 
why it feels so intimidating to do this work, you know, in the workplace, governmentally, in our country, whatever, is that there isn't really a precedent for it, right? We don't really know what it actually means. And this is, I think, a similar reason as to why it feels so hard to think about a realm outside of capitalism or, like, a, a different form of economic uh, economic way of doing things because, you know, we've only experienced kind of one way. Um, or defining yeah, the place. Yeah, or defining the It's like we kind of have to build the, build the plane as we fly it, <laughs> and um, which will inevitably lead to mistakes. But I think I've said this before on this podcast before, that, like, our country... Our country's government is not very one not very tolerant of mistakes like you know a mistake happens and then people freak out and don't want to go down that path anymore and like want to change course completely or overcorrect or whatever and our government is not very nimble um and and you know can't really ha- handle fast moving changes but maybe i mean yeah that's where that's why we're talking about like making changes in workplaces and things like that yeah uh, my go-to solution thus far, I don't think it's the perfect solution, but when people, because I've had another, like, other experiences in, like, my volunteer organizations, for example, that are very predominantly white, where they, you know, I will bring up, like, a race-related issue um, or a minority-related issue, and they'd be like, okay, so what do you want me to do? And I feel like the the best response, the response I can come up with is, like, there are people who specialize in this go hire them and have them like figure it out because like I can't do all of the like you know years of research that would be required to like try to give you an opinion on this with any level of expertise I'm just like my one person with my one experience but there are people out there who are actively trying to do this work and I think that should be economically valued you know and if you maybe if you put money into it you'd be more likely to actually like you know do what they tell you to do you know (laughs) At my at my job right now, there's an effort to include, um, you know, when we're doing research or doing studies to like more effectively include the voices of the people that we're studying, <laughs> you know, um, and this is like kind of institutionally right. Like when you're doing a program or doing a study on. Um, like wealth inequality, it often involves you administering a program to a group of people, often a group of people of color, almost always a group of people of low income. And, you know, it feels, it feels weird in the sense of like, they're kind of lab rats, right? Like you give one program to one group of people and then you give a different, like lesser program to a different group of people and see how they fare. (laughs) And, um, you know, in order to make that process more equitable, it does seem like intuitively that like the way to do that is to include, you know, the citizens of this community and like the, the, the building process of the study. But my point in saying all of this is that, you know, we've created committees in our job and like, and we're being kind of asked to come up with ideas to tackle this issue. And, and I'm like, yeah, dude, I mean, I'm happy that you want to include us in this, but also I, I'm, I'm not trained in this. And there are people that are, that are trained in, in, in this. So we could do that instead, like instead of you asking me and this group of people, and we're all smart people, we all do research and we have ideas 
of how to like gather the appropriate information, but there are people that you could be hiring to do this instead of like putting the burden on your employees to make sure that, you know, all the future work we do is as equitable as it can be. I think you guys both bring up a good point of like the fact that we need to be directly involved. Like, like we need to know, like, okay. So it's like a lot of places try to provide services for people, but they don't actually know what the people need. It's just like, oh, they need food. So just give them food. It's like, but what kind of like, do they like the food that you're giving them? Are you actually helping them? And what you guys are kind of saying is like, um, we don't know what you want. And we really like, we need to be connected with the people that we're trying to help like firsthand. And that's a lot about caring too, like caring to bring them into the room. Um, so I think that um, obviously it's important to care like, you know, politically and like for the good of, you know, for the good of the country moving forward for everybody. Um, I also think that we can extend this notion to our personal lives, right? Like it's, I think that we often are all, and we're often often all playing the game of like who cares less as millennials, right? <laughs> and where, you know, I'm into this person and I think they might be into me, but I don't want to seem like I care too much. I don't want to seem like I got too into this. <laughs> so, you know, I'm going to not text them today or whatever. And I feel like in my personal life, I've been trying to enact a general rule of like, whenever I have that line of thinking, I just text the person. You know, I just text them and I'm like, what do you mean? Like, I, if I am talking to someone new on the internet, whether it be romantically or not, and I'm like, I don't want to seem like I'm like over hyper invested in this. Like, so I don't know if I should text them. I just text them anyway, <laughs> because, you know, if I don't, I don't think that a lot of bad can come from showing that you're interested in something. And especially, well, especially if you're planning on like being in a relationship with that person, they're going to have to know how you are. Like if you set up yourself as someone who's like, not really like going to text them, then it's like, that's what they're going to expect in the future. And then when you need more communication in the future, now you have to communicate. It's like, well, you weren't, and then you weren't like that in the beginning, if that makes sense. And I feel like, yeah, yeah, go ahead. I know. I was just going to say that like, and when I, you know, in the relationships that I'm in now, I feel like in the beginning of them, I was like, yeah, like, no, like, I, I like you, and we should keep doing this. Like, just very kind of plainly, explicitly stating that. Um, and I found that, you know, that almost always reaps, reaps positive results in the sense of, like, someone then responds with, oh, yeah, I'm feeling the same way. Or, like, or maybe they respond with, I'm not feeling the same way. But either way, like being vulnerable and showing how much you've cared has given you more information than, than you had before. You know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so now whenever any of my friends are, like, talking to anyone new on the internet and are feeling unsure about, how like, how the person feels, I'm like, you should just tell them that you're concerned about this and that you care about, and then and that you care about this issue, and then, then they'll let you know how they feel about it, and then you'll know. <laughs> mhm. I I feel like a lot of that also almost like tying it back into the way that like you know capitalism pervades every 
element of our lives, I feel like a lot of our hesitance to to like be the first one to reach out and be the person who cares more, or loves more, or you know that kind of thing, is all a product of this like scarcity mindset, right? Because it's motivated by a fear of like if I put something in, will I get that much back? Right. And I don't think I necessarily understood when I first like, you know, started hearing people talking about like this notion of having like an abundance mindset, what that really meant. Right. But like, I feel like the way that I started approaching because I used to be really, really in that mindset in my relationships. And it was like so bad for my relationship, like with my boyfriend and like even just not even just like with people who are like my housemates where it's like, oh, like, you know, if I wash this dish for this other person, blah, blah, blah. Like, am I always going to be like stuck doing this? And then like, you know, I'll always be like the bitch, you know, like <laughs> <laughs> right. But like, you know, I feel like it's it's so easy to get caught in that trap because it's so pervasive in our culture. But like there really isn't that much downside to just ha- like, you know, getting out of that framework and being like, wait, but like, so what if I'm always a person who puts more effort in or like, you know, says I love you first or does all the dishes or X, Y, Z thing. Right. Right. Cause it's like, I also- we want to be like, Oh, our time is so valuable, but like, what are you going to do otherwise? Like I'm in a pandemic. Am I literally, is my extra, like however much time, like watching TV really so much more valuable than just like washing the dish. Yeah. I think, you know, for me, like caring goes hand in hand with like radical truth. And in that, what do you mean? In the sense of, you know, if you know that if you can look deep within yourself and be like, dude, if I'm the one that washes this, like washes the extra dish every time, like, if that's, if that's something that, like, you can, like, really be cool with, then I think that you should just be like, yeah, I'll wash this dish. I think also radical truth means that sometimes you wash the dish and you say to your roommate or to your partner or whatever, like, like hey, I'm, I did, like, the dishes, happy to do the dishes in the future. You know, maybe you wash the dish, right? And, like, and I think that, like, all of that all of that means that you're, like, showing signs of investment in your relationship, right? Like, all of that kind of goes hand in hand and showing that you care, um, like, radical truth and radical authenticity, right? Because I think that the more transparent you can be equates to, you know, a more healthy relationship, whatever it might be, romantic or non-romantic. And so for me, radical truth is my way of showing that, like, I really care about this thing because oftentimes... It's not easy to be, like, super authentic about how you're feeling in the moment. Um, and I wouldn't do that if I didn't give a shit about this, you know? Yeah, and I think that it's about, like, setting boundaries and knowing what you're willing to give. Um, because, like, are you okay with being the person that always sex first? Are you okay with being the person that always washes the dishes? Like, do you need someone to, like, what do you need from this person? And, like, are they able to give it to you? Because, like... Um, Isabel, you said something like you could be okay with always doing that, but like, well, I guess, yeah, you just have to make sure that you're you're always going to be okay with doing that. If you set up that expectation, then make sure that you're meeting yourself where you meet your expectations, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think my point is basically just to try to dispense with the fear of like kind of being in the red, you know? And like seeing everything as being this like, you know, big transactional thing and like keeping your ledger. You yeah, know, like, what do you have to lose? You know? Yeah. Yeah. And especially, I mean, like, even sometimes, like, literally monetarily, right? If you, 
like, you know, I think that me and my partners are very much like a, like, I'll get this one and I'll get the next one. And there's nothing like, there's no, like, keeping track, right? Because, you know, and if we were both in, like, if we were coming from places of actual scarcity, like, we didn't have cash, then it'd be different. But I think that we both have, like, kind of, you know, uh, kind of room to, room to grow there or, like, room room to work there. So, like, why keep this ledger, you know? And I think it's that also, yeah, does translate to things that aren't, like, literally money, right? Um, yeah. Well, I think that is... I didn't understand this at the beginning when I was learning about, like, the concept of privilege, but I think that is why the concept of privilege is useful, right? Because it's basically alerting someone to the notion that, like, okay, on this, like, you know, global social ledger, you have, you started with $500, right? Like, of privilege points or whatever, right? And so, like, I think that I mean, at the beginning, I was just like, wait, why is it like it just seems like a, the only value of like, you know, alerting people to privilege is that like just to make them feel guilty more. Right. But like now I'm starting to think of it a lot more as like, oh, like because you started off with these like 500 points, like maybe you should have more of an abundance mindset of being willing to help other people because you can now open your eyes and see all the things that you have been given that weren't necessarily obvious. Mm, right you've already got like a you know a a bunch of money in the bank in that regard you know yeah share sharing is caring (laughs) yeah (laughs) or whatever (laughs) so man i think this is the first time we've talked to you during quarantine um how are you doing how are you coping what are you doing to cope um a lot of hobbies i would say (laughs) um i've gotten my fingers on a lot of things um i've been like doing photography which is one of my like passions from high school i've been like trying to sew things i tried cross stitching and i've been cooking a lot so um just trying to keep busy you know um trying to get back into shape now um but, yeah. yeah, I've also been cooking a lot. Yeah, what about you guys? What how, how have you guys been coping? Uh, cooking, kicking it, buying shit. Um, you know, whatever. <laughs> I don't think I've been coping particularly well. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I know Isabel is like the resident extrovert. I can't, so. <laughs> I can't deal with this shit. <laughs> yeah, it's really bad. And like, we're yeah. gonna have a rough winter, man. I know. There's no more, no more outdoor <laughs> hangs. I stepped outside this morning, like right now, and I was like, it's cold out here. What the fuck? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I got a puppy. That's another way that I'm coping. Um, and I'm like, I didn't realize, I sounds like crazy. Like, I didn't realize how much work a dog is, but like now I'm realizing, oh, I have to do this work in winter too. Um, yeah. So we'll see how the first winter goes. Yeah, be outside <laughs> with them and shit. Yeah, and I'm not a person that likes the cold. Like, I get cold in, like, this weather. Like, I'm, like, shivering. Like, so we'll see how it goes. Like, it really, like, makes you prove, like, your love to a creature every single day. (laughs) (laughs) Um, All right. Well, before we get out of here, do you want to plug your show again and tell us, tell the people where they can find you? 
Yeah, my show is called Nice to Meet You. It's on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, um, Stitcher, and it's a podcast where I talk to people um, about their lives. It's just people that I've met, and we just, you know, share stories and talk about um, life and lessons learned along the way. Um, so you can find that at NTNY Podcast on Instagram and Twitter. And um, if you know anything about Instagram, then you can probably find my personal stuff. And as always, you can find us at I'm the Villain Pod. That's our Instagram, our Twitter, and our Gmail. Otherwise, bye.